Hello, friends. You are now listening to the Kaderna Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Kaderna, and thanks for tuning in today. This is episode number 18, and today we're featuring our monthly guest. Again, once a month, we bring on a guest so we can get a nice outside voice, kind of switch things up a little bit for us. And I'm really pumped up to share today's story um, because today's guest is a very unique young man uh, out on the West Coast in Newport Beach, California, and comes into contact on the daily with some really interesting people. A lot of the rich and famous that all of us have heard about, uh, but he works with continually on a day-by-day basis, like I said. And who our guest is today is none other than John Reed. So in short, John is the financial advisor to the financial advisors of the rich and famous. John helps these advisors implement and maintain advanced wealth and business protection and transfer strategies. He's helped insurance advisors place over $1.5 billion of coverage and has helped implement over $300 million of insurance premiums. All right, that is a huge number um, that he's been directly involved in. He currently serves as a finance commissioner to the city of Newport Beach, California, and he's the immediate past president of the Young Professionals Giving Back. John is a graduate of the University of Cincinnati, where he has a BS and MS in aerospace engineering, as well as an MBA. He's an avid reader, a competitive sailor, having raced in the 2019 Transpac, which is absolutely crazy. We're going to talk about that today. Uh, And he's an international traveler. We have a lot to talk about in the world of finance and well beyond that, both from John's insight, but also interacting with some of the the brightest, wealthiest, and most successful minds in the country. So without further ado, let's get it underway with John Reed. So thanks for joining us today, John. Yeah, happy to be here, Brian. Thank you very much. Yeah, definitely. So, I mean, that's quite a, uh, like a diverse background that you've had to date. Tell me a little bit about like where you got started. I see that you have a, a BS in aerospace engineering. That's, that's pretty interesting. I, so I grew up on a farm in Ohio in a cornfield about an hour south of Cleveland. And uh, always was gifted in math and going through career counseling. They asked, what do you, what do you like to do? What are you good at? And I said, well, I love looking at the stars and I'm good at math. And they said, okay, you should be an aerospace engineer. And it made sense to me at the time. So I went to, uh, went to the farthest school I could go to where I still got to pay in-state tuition because I'd put myself through school uh, and ended up in Cincinnati when I was 18. So I, uh, wow. I've always been a big fan of, of space travel. And, you know, when we get into the really geeky, nerdy parts of the conversation, it's, it's something <laughs> I could talk about for days. But uh, yes, I, awesome. I think that the future of humanity is, is living off of the Earth and would love to help provide some, some resources to help us get there faster. So, Wow, that's crazy. You read all this stuff nowadays about, like, Richard Branson and – uh, Elon Musk and all these guys trying to get into to space. I mean, do you see yourself doing that someday, going out into orbit? <laughs> well, we'll see. So Virgin Galactic, Richard Branson's company, they have um, they are taking applications and payments for people to be astronauts, and they are uh, they're actually doing a whole program right now where they're doing training for the astronauts before they go um, to make sure that they don't suffer from something called gold medalist syndrome, which they kind of loosely define as 
the feeling you get after you hit your life's accomplishment in the middle of your life. And so my friend Loretta, who her husband is the CEO of Virgin Galactic, she's doing a test run this weekend. Uh, I'm, I'm going to help her out with that a little bit. And it's to talk about how to be the best version of you and how to use all your past experiences to keep moving forward so that you don't feel like you've peaked and you stop going. So long answer to the question, but yes, I would love to get to outer space. Uh, my wife and I both are nerds like that. Uh, it's something we'd, we'd love to do in our lifetimes. And not only a nerd, but I'd say pretty brave. I mean, that's, <laughs> I've been asked several times to jump out of an airplane and go skydiving, and I just can't bring myself to do it. And uh, I think just going out in outer space is like taking that and shooting it up with steroids. That's, that's some experience. Well, the risk-reward factor is a little different with space, right? I mean, everyone can jump out of an airplane, but if you've got the opportunity to go see the Earth from afar, uh, that's, a, that's a whole different ballgame. That's pretty cool. So that all started just with, you know, being out there in the cornfields or on the farm and, and gazing at the stars? It, it, yeah, absolutely. Wow, pretty cool. And so explain to me how you go from being, you know, into the stars, studying aerospace engineering, and now you're in our world of finance. Like, where did that transition begin to occur? Uh, when I was in when I was in engineering school, we had to do a thing called the co-op program, and uh, at the University of Cincinnati, it's part of the the engineering curriculum. So you had to go and work in the industry for every three months that you went to school. So you'd, you'd go to school for three months for a quarter, and then you'd go work in industry for a quarter, and that was appealing to me. I had to pay for school as I went, and so that provided cash flow. You're actually paid to do it, and I worked for a small research and development company in Dayton, Ohio. And quickly found out that I was you know, gifted at business development side of things. I started writing proposals to NASA and the Department of Defense and DARPA, um, taking ideas that we were working on as a company and asking them to fund them. And so I had my first funding contract when I was 19. Uh, NASA funded us to create something I came up with called a, a self-healing aircraft skin using a few of the different technologies we had at the company. And what that kind of led me to realize was that the business development side, I really was passionate about. I really enjoyed trying to take great ideas and finding places to apply them and, and finding ways to maximize them. And so when I was finishing undergrad, uh, I started my, my master's in aerospace engineering and had the opportunity to go to business school at the same time and got into business school. And one of my colleagues, best friends or roommates was a Northwestern mutual advisor. And, he called on me and talked to me about financial planning and life insurance. And I told him, I have no interest in any of this, but you can be my guy. Here's the day I'm supposed to start my new job in the engineering world. Call me that day and we'll, we'll start planning. And like a great rep, he followed up. You know, I, I know a lot of us, you know, in retrospect, a lot of us hear that follow up and we don't do it. Uh, he followed up on the day that he was supposed to, and I just didn't have a job anymore. The company had changed their structure. My job was rescinded and I was back to the drawing board. And again, like a good rep at a big career company, he told their recruit, their recruiting advisor that uh, here's a guy, he was the president of his MBA class, why don't you try and talk to him about joining Northwestern Mutual as a career? And that's how I got plugged into it initially. I, I was approached by the director of development there, asked me if I'd ever thought about a career in financial services, and I, I told her no. I didn't even know what life insurance really was. Uh, but my personal board of governors at the time, my, my kind of stepfather, uh, some other folks that were people very influential to me, they said, John, you know, you'll never, ever regret spending a year with a company that's going to give you professional sales training. Go try it out. 
you can always go back to aerospace. You can always go do something else, but um, use this opportunity. Now you're young, you're used to not making any money anyway, go try it. And I did, and I found a success in it uh, pretty quickly. Wow, that's pretty cool. I mean, that, that would sound like to most, I believe, a total 180, but I think it's true. I always tell people that sales impacts every aspect of life, whether you're trying to sell a service or a product or a pizza pie or a, a solution to some sort of you know huge medical issue. You're always trying to promote or sell your concept to improve whatever situation you're working on. So I think that was good advice, and obviously that that launched a whole other career path for you. It's pretty neat. Yeah, I completely agree. I, I when I think of what the definition of a sale is, it's it's moving people to take the action to exchange two things for a value that they perceive. And so whether that's NASA giving us money to design an aircraft wing skin system, or a client choosing to move money into an investment account or to an insurance contract. Uh, it's exactly, it's the same skill set, it's the same process, and if you really distill it down, you have to follow. Yeah, no, I agree wholeheartedly. And so now you get into kind of almost like a client first and then transcend into being an advisor yourself um, on the retail side, as we call it, you know, working with individuals, families, or businesses. And then eventually you went into where you're at now as a consultant. So, you know, tell me, because I've personally, I've always been on, the front end, dealing with the consumers, providing financial plans to my clients. What prompted you to leave that world that I'm familiar with and go into consulting and kind of being like a coach to folks like myself out there? Yeah. So my first year in the business, I talked, uh, you know, your natural market, right? That's who you call on when you, when you get into the career. And my natural market was a, a bunch of engineers. So I don't know, Brian, do you work with many engineers on the planning side? I don't work with many, but I come from a family of engineers, uh, which is funny. Both my father and my brother uh, work for the Department of Defense and for the Army as engineers. So um, I, I'm certainly probably more familiar with engineers than most other careers. It's, uh, it's an interesting market. And I think if you talk to a lot of financial advisors, they struggle with it. And I think the struggles come from being asked very, very critical questions that require complete transparency. And that's what I learned with with the engineering clients they had talking about a complex asset like life insurance was not only getting into uh, the how and the why and the concept behind it, the, the tax advantages, things like that, but it was also giving them full transparency on what the downside could be, what the opportunity costs were, and what what they were basing these decisions on. And it's when I shifted from talking about things like a salesperson to really being an economist that I started to have the most amount of success. It was people who wanted to have a clear process to follow, not necessarily the perfect solution, but a solution that was good enough to move forward. Because if people are, are left to overanalyze and never take action like engineers are, they sit there and they just overthink things. They're, they're paralysis by analysis, or analysis by paralysis. And yep. it was digging into really just being very transparent and having a process to follow that led me to be recruited by a local uh, a local private bank. So I was in Cincinnati, Ohio, Fifth Third's private bank reached out and they were looking for someone who had a specialization in, uh, in life insurance specifically to come on board and advise and train the other advisors to their high net worth client base. And me being a uh, farm boy from Ohio, I didn't have a natural market of high net worth clients. 
So I realized that the value I had to bring to the table was that technical expertise and the value they brought to the table was a wealthier, more affluent uh, client base that needed more of the things that I was an expert at. And so that's how I started moving to a more consultative, con consultative role. That was in 2013, and about a year later, if you fast forward, I had a, a friend of mine who was with Northwestern Mutual. He was moving his practice from uh, Ohio to Newport Beach, and he was looking for someone who understood the high net worth market, understood you know, that company's products, but also understood outside business and how to be an advisor to an advisor. And he recruited me to come out to California and run that firm which was a joint work firm. So now we have again got to the point where we're not doing any retail ourselves. We're truly looking for advisors who have clients with very specific need base uh, and giving them the tools to be successful for their clients. Got it. Okay, that makes perfect sense. And now to kind of bring our listeners into where you're at today, um, I mentioned those numbers earlier on that recently you've you know, done over 175 cases that resulted in over a billion and a half of coverage and over $300 million of premiums. Just to give the folks out there that, that might not be so familiar with our line of work, when we talk about life insurance, an average premium that I would say, and this is just from my own history that I see a lot of my peers, a lot of other advisors, right, could be anywhere from on a term policy, a couple thousand, as you get into permanent insurance, maybe you're looking at six or $7,000 annual premium, all right? And now we're talking about John here has helped issue over $300 million of annual premium. So just to give our listeners a scope of what that is, can you provide a little bit about why these folks are doing such huge life insurance policies? And then we can get into as well, what exactly premium financing is, because I know a lot of folks might not be familiar with that. Sure. So our market is primarily in the estate and business planning. So these are clients who are uh, choosing to use life insurance as a source of liquidity to support a plan of uh, an estate transition or a business transition. So for a general, you know, Brian, you and I, if we, I buy life insurance to protect my wife and my nephews and my niece so that I have a plan right now that I want to take care of all of them during my lifetime. And if I'm not here to do so, I want instant liquidity to be able to satisfy those obligations that I've made to my family. That's why I bought life insurance. And the clients, the clients that I work with and that you work with uh, are, are doing the same thing. They have built a business or they've built a lifestyle or they've built an estate that they also want to leave to the next generation or they want to be able to pass down or they want that value to transfer for longer than they are. And when we look at life insurance, a lot of times it's to satisfy tax obligations that the government imposes um, that could be devastating to a family business. So I like to think about what we're doing is keeping the family farm in the family. Um, for instance, a, a family in Ohio right now that has a $30 million dairy farm. So these are these are people I didn't realize were near me, but that you know, a few of the families where I grew up, this is a perfect example. They have a $30 million uh, dairy farm. This is a couple thousand acres of land, a couple hundred head of cattle. And when they're doing their planning, what they realize is that if mom and dad pass away and they want to pass the business to their kids, they're going to leave the farm, which is worth $30 million. And the government's going to say, okay, you can pass $22 million for free. So $8 million of that's going to be a taxable transfer, and that's going to be taxed at 40%. So you're going to have a $2.4 million, or sorry, a $3.2 million tax obligation back to the government. 
there's a few different ways to satisfy that, and that's where we get into it. When we work with an advisor, it's determining how are we going to satisfy that because the government's not going to take uh, cattle as payment. They're not going to take a couple hundred acres of land as payment. They're going to take cash, and there's a few different ways to satisfy that. There's some, there's some you know, things in the tax code that we can delay that and pay it over 10 years. There's ways to go out and get refinancing with a local bank and take collateralization of your farm, or a lot of clients choose to shift that risk onto a life insurance carrier sheet instead and say, we're going to secure that $3.2 million of insurance with a life insurance carrier. So when we die, the family gets the $30 million farm, the $3.2 million tax bill, and a $3.2 million pile of money to satisfy those. That's what we do. Mm -hmm. The premiums and the dollar amounts that we're talking about are because our average client is, is you know, typically above that $30 million. We're looking primarily in the $50 to $250 million net worth range. These are families that have built major corporations that have uh, significant real estate holdings. They've taken a company public. Uh, those are a lot of the fact patterns for the clients that we're working with. Okay. And just for everyone that's tuning in out there. So I know that right now with John, we're talking about some ultra high net worth people here in, in America. Um, but I think a lot of these concepts that we're going to start discussing apply to you know, folks of every way, shape and form. Um, when we talk about life insurance, ultimately we're talking about letting that do the legwork of leaving behind whatever obligations for legacy, taxes, et cetera, that need to be satisfied so that we can preserve the assets that we own, be it in John's case, you know, the farm, the cattle and so forth. So uh, I understand, you know, the, um, the point there, I just don't want anyone to get lost and think that uh, this is something that applies just to the mega wealthy. This particular strategy may. Um, but I think it's understanding all of it is uh, beneficial to everybody out there. Yeah, and, so, and, and I think for life insurance, just as an asset by itself, you're 100% right. So I don't want to talk over anything, but I think it's important anytime you have an obligation as a human, as, as if you say you're going to do something, to have a plan to follow through on it. And then when you start thinking about what could drive that plan off, a lot of times it's contingent on your ability to either make an income or to stay employed or or something of that sort to create the, the funding mechanism that we can shift that over, whether it's a car, whether it's college payments, whether it's a, a home, um, whether it's taking care of kids. I mean, I think that whenever families, people ask me all the time, does everyone need life insurance? And I, my answer directly is no, because it's the factual truth is not everyone needs it. But I think everyone who has an obligation that makes an obligation that gets paid for with money, it's something they should look into as a risk transfer tool. Um, my, you know, my neighbors, they, they're, you know, younger, younger family, they're 28 and 32. They just had their first baby. And that was, they, they, we just had this conversation, I think last week, we were talking about how much, how much insurance do I need? And it really gets into what, you know, what obligations are you making and what obligations do you want to make sure are funded no matter what? Got it. And you know, one of the ways that it was explained to me when I just started as a financial advisor in 2008 there was a, a senior uh, guy at our office, a real big insurance producer, and he said that if you have life insurance, you know that you're going to have life insurance in effect upon your demise, you know, particularly referencing permanent insurance. He said that that becomes like a permission slip to use all of your other assets for your own benefit and know that you're not disinheriting any heirs or beneficiaries and that essentially you could let, again, that life insurance do all the legwork. Um, for kind of taking care of what's here when you're not here to satisfy any of those debts, obligations, or goals that you might have had. And the way that he put it that always kind of stuck out to me 
is that that permanent insurance is going to afford you the same exact legacy, which much greater cash flow or retirement assets than you would have otherwise, or the same amount of cash flow and retirement assets, but with a much greater legacy. And that always, you know, rang true to me, and I think spoke to kind of the power and the leverage of having that guaranteed death benefit there, you know, obviously with some unique tax advantages. And we get into kind of your specialty here of premium financing. Can you just define that for, for those of us that, that aren't aware of what that is? It Very simply, it is a way to pay for your life insurance using other people's money. And I okay. think that it gets, it gets confused. It gets marketed in a lot of different ways. Um, but that's, that's what premium financing is. It's using a bank or using, other, using typically a third-party lender to make the premium payments for the client. And the general fact pattern that I follow is I want to see three things. I want to see clients who have already identified a need for life insurance as part of their planning, number one. Number two... I want to see clients that can afford to make the premium payments to buy the contract. So that's funding these at a permanent basis. And number three, when I get feedback from a client that they can't justify, they like the idea of life insurance. They like the idea of the asset class. They like what it can do. They can afford it. They can make the premium payments. They can deploy the capital to pay for it. But they choose not to because they have a better opportunity to use their money somewhere else that's when we look at premium financing. Because I can't okay. tell you how many clients I have out here in, in Southern California that are investing in real estate. In the city of Newport Beach, the average appreciation of real estate has been 6% for over 20 years. So if I have a client wow. who needs to buy life insurance as part of their plan and they know it, they can't justify selling their house in Newport because they're getting 6% growth on it year over year. And they've done so for so long that there's a a very negative tax consequence when they sell out of it. Their basis is low, the value is high. Mm -hmm. And so because they don't want to face that tax consequence now and they don't want to get out of the growth opportunity, we will work with a, a bank to pay for their insurance for them until the point in which time they sell that piece of property, they liquidate their assets, they change their investment portfolio, and they have now created the liquidity which no longer has a better use outside of the insurance. We use that money to repay the lender, and they own the insurance outright. That's okay. what we do. And now, what would you say to the, the people out there that would say that's kind of delaying the inevitable? That you know, eventually, that that you said you're using other people's money, which obviously implies at some point we have to pay that back. Um, so, is that just essentially delaying this event of the sale of the property or the business or whatever it may be? That's exactly right. Yeah, it's, it's delaying it so they can continue to enjoy the appreciation or the tax efficiency of their assets or get into newer places where they have better tax efficiency or growth opportunities. But okay. they have to pay the interest and they have to pay the principal back. It's not, a, it's not a loan that you get that you don't pay. I mean, I don't know many people who borrow money without the intent of paying it back, but it works yeah. exactly the same way for funding life insurance. Okay. And now just to give us again an idea of, of what these premiums are, because what I quoted earlier, again, that's just my own average. It's not an empirical evidence of those premiums that typically could range, you know, from a few thousand to $10,000 a year. What is like the average premium um, that, that people are paying when they're actually financing it? 
So we're, you know, we're doing a deal right now. I have an advisor who's out in the East Coast area. Um, his clients are in their 50s. They're looking at a $4 million total portfolio of coverage. They're going to do $2 million on uh, both the mother and the father. Those, the combined premium is $287,000 a year for 10 years. So that's a very, like, that's a normal size case, I would say. That's nothing extravagant. That's something we would work on on a very regular basis. Most of the lenders I work with, they won't entertain under two hundred to $250,000 a year of premium payments. And most okay. of them have a maximum that's, uh, you know, without going to credit approval or committee approval for the bank, usually around $3 million a year. Okay. Wow, $3 million of annual premium. Yeah. Wow, yes. I mean, we're talking huge numbers, obviously. If you don't mind, just while we're on the topic, what's the maybe the biggest case that you've seen, if you could share that with us? Seen or that we, ha we're, we, have, we have a client that- you've that been involved in, yep. We have a client who their premium payment is $11 million a year. Wow. That's, now, wouldn't a lot of folks out there, because I certainly hear this say, hey, if that guy can fork over $11 million a year, every year, or at least finance that amount that he's gonna, he or she is going to have to pay back, why do they have this need for a life insurance if they're already that independently wealthy? Well, they're, they're worth you know close to a billion dollars, and at death, they're going to have a two to $300 million tax obligation, and what we've done is created a pool of liquidity so that they don't have to sell out of their marketable securities, their real estate, their, their privately owned businesses. They can pay the government those taxes. What I, what I think is really important to remember is that the life insurance doesn't make anybody wealthy. You know, when, when we're looking at a two to $300 million portfolio of coverage, it doesn't make anybody wealthy. What it does is it actually pays their tax obligation. Okay. I, I, yeah, I, I would agree with that because it sounds like you're giving them choices at that point in time when there is that transition that if they're ready to sell that property, that business, what have you, if they want to, great. But if they don't want to, if that's their best performing asset, they don't need to. There's no cause for a fire sale because they just got this influx of capital. Yeah, that's it. It, it creates some opportunities for them to, to choose how they're going to either liquidate or hold on to uh, those other assets, which would you know, otherwise have to be liquidated in a very quick manner. And sometimes sure. it's not best. You know, we don't know what the market looks like for privately held businesses all the time. We're at a, we're at a record high valuation mark in, in our, our economy right now. So businesses are, are booming for value. That's good and it's bad because if the theoretical value is $1 and then there's a death and the tax obligation is based on that in the next nine months while we're trying to sell out, we have a, a shortage of people who want to step in and actually purchase those assets because they believe that they're going to go down in value. Yeah, it creates a mismatch. It creates a, 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 a small market for someone who has to liquidate a lot of, a lot of value. Okay. Okay. Terrific. And now these are you know, obviously huge cases. They're very complex. They sound pretty exciting for sure. How do you get involved in these? You know, just, you know, an, an average Joe from, you know, the middle of the country, Obviously, you climbed your way up to now this consultant position, but how are you getting yourself in front of um, these clients that, that obviously have amassed such great wealth? So, I mean, the honest answer, the direct answer is it's, it's talking to, to guys like you, Brian, where mm -hmm. you, have, you have spent a lot of time building your book of business. You have your practice. You have great families that you deal with that trust you and believe in you. 
and through your marketing efforts, through your reputation, through your hard work, what happens is someone inevitably comes upon you and says, hey, Brian, can you give me some help? I understand that you've helped my friends with this. And you start doing your due diligence, you get into your fact finding, your discovery, and they go, well, what we're trying to figure out is how much insurance we should buy for worth $50 million. And if that's not your normal client, if that's a client that's a bit of an outlier for you, uh, you have two choices. You can figure it out. You can uh, you go to your advanced markets teams. You can uh, attract a group of advisors around you who can help it, or you can just try and get through it yourself. And mm -hmm. if you haven't gone through it before and you're going to recruit help, that's where, that's where my team comes in. We're really a joint work firm, a consulting team that helps advisors who have opportunities that are a bit outside of their normal. Uh, so when an advisor has a complex case, they have an ultra high net worth client, they have complex trust and estate planning, they're trying to figure out how to pass a business efficiently, that's when they'll reach out to us and say, I'd like your help on this. Can you come and present to me and my client how you and your team approach these kinds of problems? And that's where all my business comes. I'm, I'm, I work exclusively through other advisors. I don't have a retail practice at all anymore. I've dropped all my investment licenses, so there's no competition. I don't, I don't talk to clients directly on my own. Yes, I work direct. exclusively through advisors. And now I know maybe you don't get to know these clients as intimately as the servicing advisor because you're kind of a, this third party, if you will, coming in. But just being a part of those conversations and those meetings, do you see any commonalities amongst these uh, people that are kind of in that that echelon or in that air of of such high net worth, uh, you know, be it family dynamics or personalities or um, paths that they take in their career. Do you kind of notice anything, or are they all just their own snowflake, all doing their own thing? I don't know. I think it's uh, it's. I think there are things that are are common between them. Uh, everyone who's had success that I've talked to, I've never. I've never talked to someone who said, well, yeah, it's because I'm the best. I've never <laughs> talked to someone who is cocky like that or overly confident. It's always people who have said, you know, I'm, I'm really lucky to have gotten to do this as long as I have. Or I've been really fortunate to have this product picked up by this group. Or I've really enjoyed and become a master in this, and now I get to help other people do it. It's always been people speaking from a point of gratitude and appreciation and, and usually humble. And I think that's yep. apparent on, I question it sometimes. I wonder, do you see things in other people that you want to see in yourself? Is it all a reflection? Mm -hmm. Is it, um, if I paid attention to people who are trying to be rude or mean, would I see them? I don't know. Uh, what I find is that advisors attract clients who are similar to them. And mm -hmm. I attract advisors who I want to work with. Otherwise, I don't follow up. I don't do marketing with them. I don't continue the conversation. So I try to spend my time working with advisors who I think are doing things always in the in best interest of the client, who are curious, looking for new ways to solve problems, who are passionate about something bigger than themselves, uh, and who realize that life's, life's temporary. There's no time to be uh, upset or mean or rude or, or unkind. Yeah, and I think that's very refreshing, and I think a lot of folks may find that um, quite surprising uh, if they're not dealing in that space on a daily basis. They might think of these people that are, you know, in Forbes magazine and that have, you know, these gigantic balance sheets as rich snobs per se. And I'm sure some fit that mold, but uh, like you just mentioned, there's plenty out there that are, are grateful and, and humble, which is, um, 
pretty cool. You know, not everybody started at that spot. So um, definitely yeah. some interesting insight. And that, do you, in, when we're in that space again, do you work with with any athletes or celebrities or do you end up kind of dabbling in that a lot or not so much? We do. So, I, and I don't know if it's our proximity to, um, you know, to LA and to Hollywood out here or, or what drives it, but we do get calls from advisors who specialize in the athlete market and, and there's their own set of, you know, there's their own set of issues, but it's generally on underwriting uh, is that getting, getting professional athletes approved for insurance has its own, its own problems. Um, I don't know. Have you, have you worked with athletes in the past before at all, or? I have a, a handful. Yeah. That um, I haven't, seen anything all that unique uh in regards to life insurance per se but um what are some of the things again we're talking you know i assume medical underwriting here that yeah some people and into i guess they do i'm sorry and capacity issues also so we'll yeah. for instance we did a case for a nfl player uh mid-20s great contract and was looking for a place to to deploy capital liked the idea of life insurance as another asset class was already investing in the market, investing in real estate, investing in startups that his friends were all pitching to him, and was looking for a place to have a, a more conservative, uh, a conservative asset class. And so he wanted to put a million dollars a year into life insurance. And in your mid twenties, when we're looking at MEC limits, that was a fifty-five million dollar death benefit contract on a twenty-five-year-old. Wow. And. Yeah. <clears throat> Yeah, and when you, you know, so we're no stranger to, you know, capacity limits, internal retention, but what I didn't realize until I worked on this specific case was that in the athlete market, we have carriers who will give a limited amount of coverage to an athlete because of the pooled exposure they have to the entire team. And so they came back where one of the carriers that I went to that I thought was going to take a $35 million position on this what they told me was the most they could take of the of the contract was ten million dollars, because they had too much exposure on one airplane when that when that team traveled, wow. and that was just a really big eye opening experience that we ended up having instead of going to one carrier or two carriers, we ended up having to go to three carriers in total to satisfy the entire fifty five million dollars of coverage wow. for him. That's interesting. I'm sure most folks, most people out there wouldn't think about that, that there's a, a cap to how much a carrier is willing to sell to a client. Um, but when there is such a, uh, a close-knit group like that, like on a team, uh, that's a valid point. I mean, if that plane goes down, that could be a lot of benefit paid. Um, so it's, that's interesting for sure. Yeah, and it's, uh, and it's a fun problem to get through. The other, the other side of it is that when you have to justify the health you know, the, the insurance carriers, they want to do their due diligence and make sure there's nothing, you know, no warnings of early mortality in the, in the insured's health history. And if you yeah. talk about someone at the NFL, they see the doctor every day. And so sure. we're talking thousands of pages of physician records for the insurance carriers to go through to satisfy their requirements and know that this person uh, is going to fit the, the standard mortality tables that they want to see their insurance have. Huh. It's definitely a unique uh, set of circumstances. And yeah, when, and you, when the you entertainers that, in Hollywood, that's the other yeah. side of it, is that uh, you know, a lot of big names that they, when we've worked on them, um, a lot of them, they have health issues. And whenever you're digging into this with them, you know, you life insurance is one of the most intimate conversations you can have with someone because you're talking not only about 
their hopes, their dreams, their missions, their visions, their values, and what they want to accomplish with their life. But you're also seeing the actions they're taking to go there. And, and you're seeing what their health history has been, what they've been involved with, because all of that's exposed during that underwriting process. And so we've had issues with, with celebrities that you know, these are people that are very high profile. They're in the newspaper every day. And uh, I think it takes a very, it, it takes special handling of those clients and the advisors they work with to make sure that everyone goes through things in a very stoic way. Uh, and it's very factually based because it can get emotionally charged um, when you're having those conversations. I agree. I mean, I've seen it countless times where underwriting goes sideways and then it's, uh, yeah, you really do have to be there to, to kind of hold their hand and walk them through that. I mean, if we look at Magic Johnson, um, you know, he found out that he had AIDS through a life insurance exam. Um, so, yeah, I definitely uh, can appreciate where you're coming <clears throat> from. Yeah, and he's a, he's a local guy out here. So, you know, he's, um, he's a guy we see out here all the time. <laughs> yep, <laughs> it's crazy. That's in such a little concentrated area there on the West Coast in California. Right. That's cool. And especially with athletes where the shelf life is so short, where they can make those tremendous incomes, but they don't know how long it's going to be last and it could be gone tomorrow. Um, it, can you address that that at all? I know you said like this one athlete you were working with was looking to put almost a million dollars a year into life insurance. Was the driver there starting to look into, you know, generational planning, estate planning, or was he doing it more from building another asset class via the cash values that was not correlated to the markets that had some nice tax privileges. Um, was there one particular driver or was a little bit of everything for him? Yeah, I think it was, it was really a combination of a, of a couple things. One, he wanted a, an alternate asset class. So he wanted some place to deploy capital for the, the downside protection and the efficiency of the access to cash value that he would have. But as well, what he knew was that it might make more sense for him to shift into that in the future. And originally we looked at it as, as premium financing. We looked at uh, keeping his money deployed elsewhere and then deploying a bank's money into this. And, and the theory was that down the road, if his investment philosophy changed, if the way that he wanted to structure his portfolios changed, he had to have the life insurance already in force and already have the capacity to put money towards that, that, that program in order to do so. So wanted to secure the coverage while he was young and healthy, and then could make those choices down the road. So that what I think of was that the, the premium financing, the interest payments were almost like the carry cost to have the option of using it down the road. And that was a lot of what he thought about. Uh, at the end of the transaction though, he ended up choosing just to deploy capital straight into it, paying the premiums directly, knowing that we could, we could change that and finance those enforced policies down the road uh, if he wanted to change his, his approach and his structure. Yeah, I've seen that I, even personally where I've worked with some folks that have very large real estate holdings that, you know, we pursue this premium financing option. And then once we finally get to the finish line, they say, you know what, I think I have the means to shift some monies around or some of my rent roll and actually pay the premium myself. Um, and so that option's there and it's not always utilized. So in respect to that, I mean, some people would say that this sounds almost too good to be true, that we're going to take other people's money we're going to buy this enormous death benefit and then that's going to create cash value all along the way for you know very large numbers and then eventually if something were to happen i mean we can pay off this one with that death benefit and 
some of the ways I think that I see it marketed or sometimes presented almost seems like we're getting something for nothing. I know that's an exaggeration, but can you talk to us about some of the downside? You know, what, what could go wrong with a large premium financing case? Yeah, and I think you raise a very interesting point here. There are a lot of marketing organizations right now that are promoting premium financing as a means to get insurance for free. And it's not not just in jest. It's not the thought that it's too good to be true. It's actually putting it on paper and presenting it to clients and to advisors. They are showing transactions where the client is not paying the interest out of pocket, that they are posting so much significant external collateral that they can defer those interest payments, have them rolled up in the crew inside the, the transaction, um, and the hopes that they can do a, an alternate loan rollout and repay the lender with policy values and, and keep the insurance enforced for free. That's it. That is something that is actively being marketed right now to advisors and to high net worth clients. That was the call I was on. So essentially, this. just to summarize what you said, essentially take the other people's money, purchase this very large policy, build up those cash values, and then use those same cash values to repay that loan effectively not costing the client out-of-pocket money. Is that, that that marketing tool? It is. Yeah, the, the analogy from a real estate perspective, it's like you going to a bank and saying, I want to buy this, this piece of property and build an apartment unit on it. And you tell them, okay, here's what I need to make this happen. Let's pencil out this loan and have my business plan. I need you to give me 100% loan to value for the property. And I'm going to build, I'm going to defer my interest payments on it until the end of the year. And then I'm going to refinance again at the end of the year, assuming a static 6% growth of the property. And I'm going to refinance it again at 100% loan to value. And as long as my interest payment is under 6%, I can do this forever. And after so many, so many, so many years of doing this, I'm going to have if my projected 6% growth pans out, I'm gonna have so much extra value that I'm then gonna refinance with another bank and have them pay you off completely uh, and have, when I sell the property, have enough to pay them off too and own this, this big giant asset for free. That's kind of the concept that's going inside these, these contracts. Okay, and now obviously as we blow up that balloon, it could pop. So where does, where does that go wrong? I guess tell me a little bit about where this fits correctly, where it looks nicely. And I guess some of the things people have to be uh, weary of when they say that, wow, this is, they're getting very excited by, you know, how this sounds on paper. So the approach that I take, I, instead of using projections and looking at a static uh, business plan of how this insurance portfolio can pan out for free, what I look at instead is what are the costs? What are the contractual guarantees in a contract? Uh, what does it look like from a, a drag perspective? So what are the cost and charges of a contract? And then evaluate what are the potential upside range look like and layer those over top of each other. And that'll give my clients a range of outcomes where they understand from a contractual minimum guaranteed perspective, uh, how the insurance could perform all the way up to a projected value. So they can see that they're gonna fall into a trough between those two that we just don't know where it's gonna be. And as long as we are okay with the entire range of outcomes, then it's an appropriate transaction. If a client has just shown the best case scenario and then maybe they stress a few of the assumptions, I think that's really doing a disservice for clients. And it's something that ultra high net worth clients are going to be very um, skeptical of and typically will sure. dismiss an advisor for presenting them something that's, uh, 
yeah, absolutely aggressive and, and unreasonable. Got it. Got it. Yeah, I think full transparency. That's the key to success in anything at the end of the day. And so that's a quite an interesting career, obviously, that you've that you've chosen and, and developed over time. Now you go out, you market to a lot of uh, the, the finance world so that you can reach these end users, these very large clients. I know we were talking a little bit before this about through LinkedIn, you know, here I am over in Jersey working in the, the tri-state in the Northeast, clients all over the country, but this is kind of where my boots are on the ground. You're over in Newport, California. We met through LinkedIn. I think it may have been initially through an article I wrote or some connection yep. there. How do you use LinkedIn? Like how, I know I've gotten a lot of traction through it, but why don't you tell us your story? So, uh, and, and my audio cut out, can you just repeat the question again? Sorry about that. That's okay. Yeah, I was just asking uh, in respect to LinkedIn, you know, I've I've had a lot of traction with that. I know that you've used it to leverage and, and increase your business. So if you could just tell us a little of your story about how you've leveraged LinkedIn. Yeah, great question. So um, a business coach I've been working with for about two years, we did a we did kind of a tracking of activity to see where uh, where I was gaining the most traction from in-person meetings to phone calls to texts to emails to social media marketing. And what we found was I was having the most amount of success just giving away information on LinkedIn and then having advisors reach out asking how that information could apply to a case they were working on. And so I've I've kind of doubled and tripled down myself onto LinkedIn as my like information distribution tool. And so I you know, I, I spend a lot of time connecting to financial advisors, RIAs, private banks, uh, family offices, advisors to high net worth clients, and pushing a lot of information on how we're getting cases through, how we're getting planning achieved for clients, so that these advisors, when they see it, they can they understand the fact pattern. They I try to make it as, as simple as possible to say, here's here's the concentration of wealth, here's the planning objective here's what we kind of approach the structure at and um, this is how we got success for the client and i want to make it so that an advisor reads that and goes i have a client who's just like that or i have a friend who's got the same problem and what i again what i'm really proud of is that i spend my time focusing on the process to follow because every single engagement is custom so it's not having the same product or solution it's having the right process to follow to arrive at that solution and LinkedIn's been great for me. I've um, I did a little bit of automation on my marketing, and I've connected to a little over twelve thousand people since January on LinkedIn. I offer everybody I connect with uh, you know, a chance to let's jump on a phone call and get actually formally introduced. And for those who do, it, it's great. I love having conversations like this because you meet people who are working with great clients all over the country and have cool stories and are working on awesome problems, all awesome problems. Um, and as well, it gives me a voice online, similar to you know, the podcast. I think this is a brilliant yeah. way to to give information away and let people know that you're not just a student of your business, you're a student of the whole industry and you want to see the whole industry do better. Yep, no doubt about it. And that's it's some of the things I just love about social media and you know the internet is it's it's made the world a much smaller place. And so if you have a nugget of information or something to share to help others, you can get it out there almost instantaneously uh, to such a gigantic audience. So um, I guess that's also what you're doing on kind of a microcosm through LinkedIn and a little more targeted. 
So that's pretty cool. And, and now just uh, digressing a little bit, you know, as we were talking about your, your resume or your bio a little bit earlier. So you're also a finance commissioner for the city of Newport Beach, California. What, what exactly does that entail? And how do you balance that with, you know, consulting to advisors and high net worth clients across the country? So uh, the finance commissioner role is a, it's completely volunteer. It's a non-paid role. Uh, our city has seven city council members three of which sit on the finance committee for appoint representatives uh, from the community to to serve on that board and are on that committee and i was appointed this year by kevin muldoon um, and so what i do is i serve on typically a monthly basis we gather to go through the city's 330 million dollar operating budget or the plans for the year and determine and, and just have an outside you know, scrutiny of where money's going, what kinds of plans are in the works, what changes are happening that could impact the cash flow, what are our long-term obligations. And so coming from a insurance background, Kevin thought it would be a good place for me to plug in and be very risk averse and be able to bring that insurance perspective to the conversation so that when we're talking about these budgets, uh, it's, from, it's really from a how do we protect the city standpoint. So it's about a month, it's about once a month that we'll have meetings uh, we have 85,000 residents in the city, and, and the majority of our cash flow as a municipality comes from property taxes. So we're pretty lucky that it doesn't fluctuate too terribly much um, in the in you know in a down year. And yes. uh, every year we have to pass the the operating budget. So that's really what I'm doing here. I got involved with it through uh, a good friend of mine, Joe Stapleton, started a group called the Distinguished Citizens Program. And that was a, a, a four-week program that really plugged young leaders in the city into the municipality. We had the, the chief of police, the chief of fire, the director of HR, the city manager, um, the mayor, all of city council. All of, these, all of these people who are just concerned citizens came and talked about where their passions were and what their roles and responsibilities were and encouraged us to find ways to give time to the city. And when this this commissionership opened up, uh, it was just a, a great fit and, and perfect timing. Wow, that's pretty neat. And uh, I mean, it sounds like you, you, you're doing so many different things. Do you see like a career in politics in the future or, or you just prefer to stick to the, like the financial economical realm of things? Yeah, absolutely not. I, I, I have no interest in being in politics <laughs> in the future. That's, that's not on my radar whatsoever. I'm honored to be able to serve on this committee and it's uh, I'm, I'm glad that my wife has been so supportive you know we got I got married in December so newlywed and uh, when this opportunity arose my wife said you know I I would trust our city's finances with you you have the opportunity to serve you, you really should do it and that was a decision we made together um, but as far as long term or career in it no no not on my radar whatsoever <laughs> I don't blame you enough said and when yeah. we were talking earlier, you mentioned, uh, and I, I got to ask you about this, because you mentioned this TransPAC, this sailing thing. <laughs> Sounds right. awesome. I know nothing about it. Can you tell us a little bit about what, what that's going on, just to shift gears here? Sure. Uh, so the TransPAC is a sailing race that takes place between Long Beach, California, and Honolulu, Hawaii. Wow. Uh, so it's about 2,250 nautical miles. Oh, my uh, goodness. It's, it's the distance from... It's the distance between us right now, from one side of the country to the other. And I, uh, I, when I moved to California in 2014, I was, I was really interested in sailing. I have been for a long time and finally had an ocean nearby. 
uh, and learned to sail and started putting it out to the world and to friends and some of the crew that I raced with in the harbor for local smaller races that I wanted to do this big race. It was the 50th anniversary of the, it was the 50th running of the race. They usually do it every other year. Uh, and I said, this is a, you know, a, a huge anniversary. It's a big round number. It's a big celebration. I want to go. It was the biggest turnout they've ever had. They had 108 boats register to do this race. And uh, a friend of mine that I, that I sail with, he was asked to be on a crew uh, out of Calabasas area, a little north of Long, north of LA. And they were looking for some more hands uh, to, to, to do this. It was a completely, they called a Corinthian crew. And what that means is none of us are paid professionals. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of the boats have paid professionals. They're very competitive. We were the least competitive boat in the whole race. We were on a, a 40 foot cruising catamaran, which means we were really comfortable and ate really well and went really slow. So we, <laughs> we, uh, so we got maybe our not as hard as it sounds. <laughs> What's that? I said maybe not quite as challenging as it sounds or? I, we were at sea for 14 days. I mean, it, you want to talk about being challenged. It was, you know, you were on a six hour cycle where the first hour you drive, the second hour you're, you're sitting next to the cap or next to the helmsman. The okay. third hour, you're geared up in the cockpit ready to work, and then you have three hours off. And that repeats four times a day, every day for two weeks. So the most amount of sleep you ever get in a row is about two and a half hours. And uh, that's assuming nothing goes wrong. And you know, we, we broke shit constantly. So okay. stuff just happens. And uh, it was the probably the greatest adventure I've ever been on. It's something I'd like to do again in the future. I'd, I want to own a catamaran, a faster one, though. <laughs> and I would love to give some some young sailors or old sailors the opportunity to do this race like I was. You know, I I don't own a boat. I don't have a crew. What's that? How many of you guys were on that boat? We had a crew of six. So including okay. the captain who acted as the navigator. Then we had a first mate and we had four crew, four crew members. So it was just you and, and five other guys go from California to Hawaii over the water in this little boat. Yeah. Yeah, that's, I don't know if I could do that one. Man, you're doing that and now you want to go into outer space. It's crazy. <laughs> it was it was so much fun. You know, you just you're you're surrounded by water. You have tons of time to think. There's no cell phone reception. You're not bothered. You're not you're not worrying about client calls. All you're worried about is keeping the boat going as fast as possible. And that's it. And whenever you have that singular vision, you have one thing you're working on, everything else just kind of disappears and you just get really into this deep this deep zone and it's very it was very relaxing even though it was very yeah. challenging. Sure, no, I, I can understand that. When you have that total disconnect, um, I even remember that when I was in, in my Ironman, is as oh. challenging and stressful as, as it could be, in a way it's almost like freeing because there's literally nothing else on your mind. You're just, you're totally in that moment. Um, so I, you know, I love that and I, I do agree with that aspect of it. And along those lines, I mean, we're, we're both in the field of, of constantly running our own business, running all over creation. Um, you're dealing with these super uber high net worth folks. How do you balance keeping them happy and doing what you do as a professional with also some of these other passions that you have and um, just getting forward every day? I think that's something I ask every guest here we have on the show. You know, how do you balance it? I mean, that's the name of your company here, Balance Strategies. Talk to us just a bit about that if you could. Yeah, I think it's important just to, this goes back to the whole idea of transparency. I, I've always been a fan of creating a system that makes you do the things that you know you need to do. And so from a business perspective, it's laying out very concrete uh, obligations. It's giving the process. 
and then following the process. And with life, it's the same way. I, I know which hours or which days I'm focused on working and on you know, marketing and client engagement and, and providing these deliverables. And I know which days I have time blocked off to serve on the finance committee and serve on the board here and do the race and, and things like that. Um, I think having structure gives me a lot of freedom. And I, I know that, that for those who you know, aren't super structured, a lot of times that sounds like it's a very uh, imprisoning mindset that if you have to do things or you have to follow an order, that that kind of takes away your freedom. And I, I think exactly the opposite. I think knowing what my day looks like and following a routine gives me a lot of freedom to focus on doing those things that I, I know are most important. So my day usually starts at 4.15. Um, I do my LinkedIn, I do daily reading, um, do a little meditation, and then go to the gym, gym five to six, um, six to 6.30, get it ready for the day. And then depending on if I'm in my office in San Diego or in Newport, uh, it's either driving to the train station or driving to my home office. And then I'm usually, you know, usually on around 7 a.m. With, uh, with advisors on the East Coast first, and then it kind of transitions as the sun rises across the country to yep. those West Coast advisors. And, I, and that's usually Monday through Friday. You know, my wife and I, same thing. We have a date night every week on Wednesday night. Um, it's a obligation that we've made to each other. And so from seven to 10, every single Wednesday, we, we go on a date and we, we switch off who is in charge of that. They get to pick everything about it. And the other person is a willing oh, person. So cool. And so it's things like that. Just when I know that's what nice. my obligation is to myself, my my mind, body, and my soul in the morning. I know what my obligations are to my professional aspirations, my, my business, and my work. I know what my obligations are to my wife and to my family. It, it makes everything great because I prioritize yeah. them up front and built everything around those obligations. Yep. And that's something I've talked a lot about on the show. And I parrot, you know, Nick Saban, famous coach from Alabama quite a bit when he always says, focus on the process, process, just look at the process, not the results. And uh, it's all about that routine. It's funny because in, in our career as entrepreneurs, I've said this many times, a lot of my buddies in the same path have said it, that, man, I just, I wish someday it would be cool to have like that nine to five job. And you just know what you're headed into. You know when you're checking out and punching the clock. But if you create your own routine in a way, you can, you know, build that uncertainty um, if you are truly controlling your calendar. And I, see, I get totally what you're saying. Some would think that's restricting. Others would say, hey, that's that's what freedom's all about is knowing kind of when you're going in and when you're going out. Yeah, that's well a great said. point. Now, if, if we could just uh, transition into the lightning round here. This is one of the favorite aspects of the show. What I'll do, I know I haven't prepped you on this. I'll just fire away some quick questions here and uh, just get to know you a little bit better, you know, beyond just, you know, this awesome business that you've developed. All so right. if we can, we'll dive right into it. And the first question I got for you is, what is your favorite book? My favorite book is, uh, as a child, it was The Giver by Lois Lowry. And as an adult, I would say it is uh, The Untethered Soul by Michael Singer. Okay. And you travel quite a bit. What was your favorite vacation or destination you've been to? Well, besides the Transpac, uh, destination-wise, uh, there's a town in Slovenia in Eastern Europe called Lake Bled. And it's the most beautiful place I've ever seen in my entire life. It's a Holy picturesque God, little, it's a mountain. There's like a mountain town there. There's a crumbled castle on a hillside that overlooks this lake. Uh, in the background, you see the peaks of the Julian Alps. And in the center of the lake is a fairy tale little church. 
and it looks like it's out of a storybook. Wow, that's beautiful. And along those lines, what's your favorite food? Uh, Taiwanese is my favorite food, uh, uh -huh. except my wife's, my wife is Indian, uh, so her Indian cooking is freaking off the rails, and uh, <laughs> that'd be my close second if she's listening. But Taiwanese food <laughs> is, is my favorite. Okay. And uh, now we're both here in this finance world. What was your favorite school subject as a kid? Physics. When I went to physics. when I took physics class in high school, that was probably my first favorite. And then it was business strategy when I was in business school. Okay. And who was your hero growing up? Ooh. I don't know. I had this picture when I was a kid of a what I thought a successful person was, even when I was on the farm. Uh, it was a guy smoking a cigar in a suit, driving a Mercedes convertible. And like, none of that stuff makes sense to me now, but that was the vision I had as a kid. Um, okay. I think that when I became in college, my hero was a guy named uh, Robert Bigelow, who he started a hotel chain. And whenever he, uh, when he became very, very wealthy, he started Bigelow Aerospace and, and then shared that it was always his dream to start this aerospace company but he knew he was really good in the hotel chain system um, and so created his fortune there. And now he's taken his wealth and he's applying it towards um, habitation and space. That's awesome. I love to see that the guys that kind of do what they have to do then to come full circle back to what they love. Yep. That's great. And you mentioned uh, when your day begins, we didn't hear when it ends. So how much do you sleep? At? <laughs> uh, I try to get to bed by 10. Uh, it's usually between 10 and midnight. So, uh, I'm usually you know, five to six hours a night. Got it. And what's your favorite movie? Uh, the Count of Monte Cristo. Okay. And if you had a quote to live by that you'd want to share with everyone, what would that be? Uh, life is great. Keep smiling. I like it. Nice and easy. Very simple. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks so much for, for being here, John. And do you have any parting words, uh, on anything, whether it's professional, personal, business advice that you just want to make sure all of our listeners here today? No, it's it's just that. I mean, we're all we're all here for a limited amount of time. I think that <clears throat> if you have the opportunity to do good, do good and uh, enjoy the ride. Well said. I love it. Well, thanks for being here. And again, everyone out there, you've just listened to another episode of the Kaderna podcast. I'm your host, Brian Kaderna. We've been live today with John Reed of Balanced Strategies. And thanks so much for being on the show, John. Thanks, Brian. Appreciate it. Have a great day. All right. You too. The Kaderna podcast is for informational purposes only. Individual situations may vary, and the information should be relied upon only when coordinated with individual professional advice. Guardian and its subsidiaries do not provide tax, legal, social security, student loan, mortgage, or real estate advice. Listeners should contact their own tax, accounting, or legal advisors or the social security department in this matter. All investments and investment strategies contain risk and may lose value. Brian Kaderna is a registered representative and financial advisor of Park Avenue Securities, LLC, PASS, 300 Broadacres Drive, Suite 175, Bloomfield, New Jersey, 07003. Securities, product services, and advisory services are offered through PASS, a registered broker dealer and investment advisor 973-244-4420 financial representative the guardian life insurance company of america guardian new york new york passes an indirect wholly owned subsidiary of guardian Kaderna financial team and international planning alliance llc are not affiliates or subsidiaries of pass or guardian Kaderna financial team is a division of international planning alliance llc a general agency of guardian passes a member of finra sipc california insurance license number ok04194 content of the Kaderna podcast is copyrighted brian m Kaderna. all rights reserved any redistribution or reproduction of part or all of the content in any form is prohibited without prior permission 
from the Kaderna podcast. The views and opinions expressed herein may not be those of Guardian Life Insurance Company of America, Guardian, or any of its subsidiaries or affiliates. Guardian does not verify and does not guarantee the accuracy or completeness of, of the information or opinions presented herein. Any third-party materials referenced cannot be endorsed or verified by Guardian and are used as the opinion of the author. Guardian, its subsidiaries of affiliates do not provide or issue or advise for mortgages. This material contains the current opinions of the author, but not necessarily those of Guardian or its subsidiaries, and such opinions are subject to change without notice.